Welcome to the Future of Ground Transportation podcast, where we discuss the exciting innovations that lie ahead for organizational ground transportation. Each episode, we cover topics tailored to those resolving transportation-related challenges and provide tips, tools, and trends that will inspire you to stay ahead of the curve. And now, here's your host, Daniel Perez. Welcome to the Future of Ground Transportation. Today we have a special guest, Mr. Spencer Tenney. Spencer and his group specializes in the mergers and acquisition, especially in the transportation space for private bus operators, as well as uh, operators in, in the logistics space. It's a pleasure having you today with us, uh, Mr. Spencer. How are you doing today? Good to be with you, Daniel. The pleasure is ours. So Spencer, uh, just to bring everyone up to speed, if you could just sort of introduce yourself and tell tell us a little bit about yourself, your firm, and what are your main expertise? Right. So, um, Tenny Group, we are an entry specialized merger and acquisition advisory firm. Um, we work with all kinds of transportation companies, from from passenger to your you know, trucking logistics. M- most of our businesses sell side representation. That would be for companies in that twenty to three hundred million in annual revenue. Um, just as far as a, a, a fun fact, um, you know, my connection to the chauffeur transportation industry goes back a long time uh, where my dad started advising on deals going back to 1973. So um, uh, some people don't know this, but, he, but yeah, 1973. And so um, my dad also w- he hired the first president of the National Limousine Association. Uh, or the, excuse me, the, the first executive director while he was while he served as president of the, of the National Limousine Association. So uh, wow. there's a, there's a little fun fact for you going back to the uh, to the history books. Totally. So super cool. Thank you for sharing that fun fact. So tell us a little bit of how you guys started in this industry, and sort of how do you how did you get started getting involved into the family company. Well, my dad had owned, um, well, well, and some people don't know this. They know my dad, but they don't know that my granddad actually was also connected to the transportation industry. He drove a cab in Dallas for, uh, I mean, even going back to uh, the 50s and 60s and then drove a beer truck. And so we've always had a family connection to the transportation space. But my dad owned several different types of transportation companies in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and you know how it is. It's just kind of happy accidents. You start doing well, people are like, probably just like you. They're like, hey, Daniel, how you doing that? And so he started uh, helping all out of friends. It started taking up a bunch of time. So he said, I should probably start charging for this. It's getting out of hand. <laughs> so, really? so uh, uh, you know, started doing consulting. And then the consulting kind of morphed into doing M&A advisory. And here we are in 2023 doing exclusive M&A advisory in the transportation space. Got it. And then for context, especially, were you guys focusing on, on the uh, passenger side or was it uh, more trucking? What were you guys doing uh, back in the day? Well, I mean, my dad, um, before he got involved in, the, in, in any of this, he was driving trucks back in his, uh, in his 20s. And, um, but most of it in terms of the M&A advisory started on the passenger side, chauffeur transportation, school bus, charter bus, courier. Um, and just primarily over the last 10 to 15 years, grew heavily in the trucking logistics space. Got it. Awesome. So, so tell us how you guys started uh, from, from in, the, in the sort of family business. How did you get involved into now running and being the, the president for Spencer, t- uh, the tenant group? 
Well, we're, we're not unlike a lot of other family businesses. Um, um, somehow my, my dad texted me a photo that he had, he's gets, he's getting real sentimental. He's, you know, I bought him out five years ago. He's still involved in a very limited PR role, but he's, but he gets kind of sentimental. And so he went through, was going through a lot of these photo books. He sent a picture of me, my first job working for him, which was janitorial service, uh, janitorial services. And so, um, I mean, it's 30 years ago and, you know, I was, that's just what I did. So that's kind of how we got started. And, went to college, went to work, did some other things and ultimately came back to family business. And, you know, he and I worked well together for 20 ish years and then, uh, became partners and eventually bought him out. But I think part of our story, um, we try to share it regularly because, you know, family business is tough and, you know, trying to kind of work through those dynamics. And, you know, although primarily what we do today is helping people transition business ownership to an outside party. I'm a huge advocate of keeping the business in the family when it makes sense, like when the people want it. And so I was like, you know, we, we, we were blessed to have the experience that we had of working with family businesses for so long that we were able to kind of go through that process and, you know, over, you know, a, a, about a five year period and, you know, navigate, ask tough questions and, 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 and then to equip me to, to be successful, all the things necessary to have a, you know, a successful transition of ownership within a family. So totally. I just, I love, I just kind of passionate about helping families, uh, even for the most part, that's not really how we you know, <laughs> function as a business. I just like doing it because, you know, I want these families to be successful. Totally not. Thank you, Spencer. And I really appreciate it because you really touched on a couple of really good uh, nuggets. Number one, Congrats, congrats to you from starting from, you know, from the bottom, right? Because most of the time, that's how I'm a huge advocate. So, for example, my son wants to get into the transportation sector and he's only uh, 16. So, I'm like, yeah, you want to get involved into the transportation? How about you start washing some buses? How, how about you start from yeah. all the way in the bottom so you could really understand sort of the work ethics instead of just, you know, being on the seat suite and thinking that he's going to run the company overnight, right? Um, so just definitely like with all the patience that requires the emotional intelligence to having those difficult conversations with family members, I'm sure that it, you know, it wasn't easy, which brings me to, to one of my questions is, you know, what would you, what would you say was your secret sauce to have that working relationship with your dad for so long and other family uh, members? Cause I, as you mentioned, it's not easy. No. I think part of it was my dad um, is very unique and that I, he's very, uh, he's unlike any other of the business owners that I serve a, a, as a business. I think that from a very young age, he was extremely generous in giving me uh, access to do a lot of things. And so now, Daniel, he wasn't as generous with the compensation uh, as part of that, <laughs> but, but but I now I know how valuable the access to the actual responsibility was, and so like pretty much pretty early on, we kind of set a tone that he set up high expectations for me, gave gave me responsibility and high accountability to go deliver on those things, and so there was always kind of. Um, a sensitivity for him to try to continue to grow me and to stretch me into being a professional. And I think that 
I think that's where a lot of folks miss it and they, they, they can, can uh, compartmentalize some of their next gen folks into doing certain things. And I think that what was different about my experience is that whether it be at marketing, marketing or whether it be on the deal execution side, like over a period of time, I got access to a lot of different things. And that ultimately set me up to be a successful owner at some point. And so I think that, that the part of the secret sauce is, um, you know, number one, giving access and with that support to do the job well, but accountability to, to deliver the results. So if I didn't deliver, I was accountable as any other employee. Um, totally. That, that didn't have the last name Tenny, that's for sure. Totally. And you know what is remarkable too, that back in the day, we didn't have the sophistication operational systems that we have today, whether it's technology or just, uh, so for example, we run on EOS, which is the entrepreneurial operating system. Mm -hmm. And it makes it so much easier now to sort of have the right cadence and have the right operational infrastructure. But back in the day, they, you know, they had sort of created, the, the leaders had to create sort of their own processes and procedures, right? So very, very remarkable from your dad. So switching subjects, going more into the main subject of today's, which is in the mergers and acquisition space, we have a lot of folks uh, to, that listen to the podcast from the uh, ground transportation companies on the passenger side, as well as the guys on the trucking space. What, uh, give us... Give us your state of the state of the art, state of the situation with mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you know we just released our report about two or three weeks ago, as far as our twenty two review and our forecast for twenty twenty three. And um, the, the way that we look at the market and and try to assess what's going on is like what's happening in our active deals. So right now we have eighteen primarily trucking logistics deals that we're running. Um, anywhere from 20 to 300 million in annual revenue, all different verticals. And from that data, like in terms of the ways that buyers are responding and engaging and the way that those same buyers are able to go get financing to get these deals completed, it provides us, it provides us a, a pretty unique vantage point in terms of what's happening and what will likely happen in 2023. And so, um, you know, if, if you look back to 2022, I mean, it was wild, wild west as it relates to M&A. Now, I think for context, you know, from, you know, for the bus, for the chauffeur transportation, it's been very much kind of pencils down from an M&A standpoint for a good bit. And I think that's beginning to change rapidly on the, uh, on the passenger transportation side. But like when COVID hit, I mean, M&A was done overnight and for, for a good while and understandably so. So it's exciting to see some uh, resurgence of interest in this space and, um, so I think that's extremely exciting for for um, for the folks that like like your industry peers. It's very exciting. And so, why would you say is is that uh, sort of that face now, Spencer? Now that we, especially in the transportation and the in the passenger transportation services, why are you starting to see sort of a, a better pattern as as we still see sort of a lot less of uncertainty with the economy? Well, I, I think that I'm saying that from a context standpoint. I'm from from you know, I'm excited to say that there is enough activity that that deals are beginning to get considered again in the way that they were pre-COVID. Now, I think that there's still a ways to go to kind of mitigate a certain amount of risk so that 
the deal structures and value propositions can be attractive enough for, for buyers and sellers to have meetings of the mind. I think we're still kind of getting there. But I think what's what's fair is that, you know, um, capital sources are opening up for the transportation, the passenger transportation side of things. They've been like the wild, wild west on the trucking logistics the last 24 months, um, with the exception of, you know, the last three to four or five, six months where there's been some major market corrections that relates to the interest rate hikes, record inflation. And, you know, I don't think we're quite out of the, out of the woods there, but in general, this is a highly fragmented space. There's, uh, you know, extreme demand and extreme need to increase capabilities um, for all folks that that kind of intersect the transportation um, arena. And so, I think for those for those reasons, there's going to be a lot of compelling uh, conversations about how do we get more deals done, uh, specifically in 2023. Got it. And Spence, there's so many questions that come to mind when it comes into obviously the the mergers and acquisition space. But what would you say for all the listeners, especially for again for folks that are in the private sector, when will be the best time for them to sell, based on your experience? You know, I, I think that the, you know, I, I tell a, a brief story. I had a, an industry friend of mine. He came to me um, a while back. Said, "Hey, Spencer, you know, I you know had this offer on the table, and it was." You know, it just wasn't a good time for me to to exit. I didn't even really consider it, but now I'm thinking that maybe that was a mistake. And I'm looking at this offer now. I should probably kind of, you know, reboot this. And I was like, that's okay. So I look at it, and I'm saying, hey, this is a pretty good offer. I mean, like, hey, let's. So where, where's this at? When was the last conversation? And Daniel, I kid you not, he says, well, that was that was six months ago. I said, six months. I was like, this is at the very top end of what this is. I'm like, what happened? He's like, well, my daughter was getting married. I was in the middle of a DOT audit. I just didn't have any bandwidth <laughs> to do it. So I said, hang up the phone, go call that guy right now and see if he'll accept that offer right now. Like, go do it. Like, I don't have to be involved in it. Just go do it. And this is a friend of mine. And so um, so he goes and tries. He calls me about a week later and kind of kind of tail between the legs and says like, well, you're right. It was, you know was a good offer and it's and it's no longer available turns out that the reason why he was making that offer was because he had a very specific problem that was causing tremendous cash flow pain for him so this acquisition provided the solution to that temporary problem so when this person didn't engage he went and found somebody else that was was in the region that could also solve that problem did the deal at a similar valuation metric and when he came back, he said, yeah, I'm still interested, but like, I don't have that pain anymore. So like, this is what it's worth to me now. So to answer your question, it, you know, in terms of the best time to sell your business is when a buyer that has the greatest strategic rationale and, and probably the, the, the most compelling investment thesis about your business is ready to pay you. That's when the right time to do the deal is. And, and, and the reality is, I talk about this all the time. It's like the cost of in the cost of convenience, especially for business owners in this space, is for the most part a luxury that almost no one can afford. This this transaction's usually the largest financial event of a lifetime. And so I think part of like the preparation is yes, you want to try to systematically, you know, have one operating system like an EOS and you want to make sure your financials are properly prepared and you want to make sure that you're reducing dependence on ownership. But, but at the top of the list, you have to be positioned to be opportunistic 
to transact even when it's least convenient for you because in that situation, the convenience that it cost that particular owner was $6 million. That's a fact. That's what That was the difference between the first offer and the second offer. Totally. Uh, yeah. One of my mentors always says, Spencer, let's run our business like it will last forever, but we could sell it tomorrow, right? Yep. So, but at the same time, from all the education that I have taken on the M&A space is that it takes time to go through an M&A process, right? It could take anywhere from 12 to eight months just to prepare the business for the ideal sale. Mm-hmm. But based on your experience, will you advise the owners of businesses that are looking to sell their business to really prepare the business for a sale or like really optimize their their operational excellence and profit margins uh, for a sale or because I'm, I'm a huge believer that asking my asking a good question at the end of the at the beginning of the year to see what game how I'm going to play the game am I going to play the game for a sale or am I going to play the game for a profit margin or am I going to play the game on a growth strategy right mm-hmm. so from your perspective if the seller has a clear picture that he's looking to sell how much time should he be allocating to really prepare himself for a set, you know, for an exit? Well, I think that timing is is key. I think what's just as important is just understanding like how and why deals get done. I think like the more that you can educate yourself around those things, the the, the more that you're going to avoid assumptions that that steal time and money away from your life that you'll never get back. And so specifically you know, there's, there's a couple of camps as it relates to like the way people think about getting value from their business. There's some people like specifically in the bus space, they'll say like, Hey, you know, I don't necessarily want to grow anymore. I don't want to reinvest in equipment anymore. I'm just going to kind of continue to pull money out. And then whenever it's not working anymore, maintenance expense gets too high, then I'll unload the equipment. Well, like, that people have, they have a blind spot, like, because it's all baked in. You can't necessarily, like, if you go and you try to go sell that same business, well, the buyers, they're, they're not an idiot. They're, they're, they're looking like, look at all this deferred CapEx. Look at all this stuff that, that they never took care of. Look at about in terms of how irrelevant the fleet is. Can't get new contracts because equipment's too old. So either it's not sellable or it's so discounted that it just doesn't work. So like, so in, in the other side of it is like, I'm just going to have new equipment and bank on the the you know the how attractive my equipment is and then the problem with that is like well they're not selling they're not pricing their business high enough to go out and have a sufficient margin so just cuz you have great equipment if you're not producing profits that's not going to be very effective either because they can't even justify paying the value of the equipment if the earnings of the business can't service the debt of that same equipment so I think that it's really more of just a mentality of saying that, like, kind of back to your deal, like I've got to, I've got to ensure this business operates at such a high level that whether you know, whether I sell it or whether I don't, it still provides me a materially benefit. But there, but there's always the option to exit if I wanted it, and I think that's the challenge. And so, like, getting that, you know, that twenty percent EBITDA margins or greater. On the charter bus side, you know, for a lot of folks, sometimes that can be a stretch because they're just not pricing their business accordingly. So I think that's that's kind of the issue. Like to to rethink about exiting, it's not like I want to sell my business, but if you're thinking about it, like I at least need to 
operate it in such a way where I have the option. I think that's where some really good things can happen and where people actually start enjoying being in the business a lot more. Totally. And how how much in advance do you suggest sellers to start working with a firm like yourself before they, they consider an exit? Well, I always, I mean, obviously it's, this is kind of like self, well, it's not self-serving, but I always say yesterday because, because here's why. The sooner that you understand like what the market says about your business today, well, some people say like, well, then, then, then they'll say well, like, well, what do I have to do to make it worth what I want it to be worth? And then I tell them and they're like, I'm never going to do that. Like, <laughs> and so like, so the sooner that you come to that realization about what's like, what you're, what's required of you to get to a place that you want. And what you're willing to do or not do to get there, that's powerful information. Because what ends up happening, some people, they're like, well, I plan on being in this business for 10 years. But based on what you're saying, like, I might be more you know, suited to go build wealth in a different channel altogether. Um, but, but sometimes another response could be like, well, this is great. Well, I know that this is very helpful so that I don't go out and make tremendous take tremendous risk on something that doesn't align with those risks and then some people might just say like well this is you know like now that i've got a foundation i know how to specifically drive value and will drive value using that as a baseline that's how i'll measure against i'll make sure everybody's tied in and doing that but you just have to start somewhere and so to me like establishing a foundation developing education about what drives value and, and why i mean you should be doing that just like you're talking about with the EOS system. You should be doing that the, the day you get in the business, not when you start thinking about selling. The day you get in, you should be thinking like that. Totally, totally. So let's talk a little bit about valuations uh, because I'm a huge believer that, obviously, as you mentioned- <laughs> You're a huge believer you- in getting people on here and telling them to do valuations. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'm a huge believer uh, that every business owner- think that their business is much more than they, than they work, right? Is that is that not an accurate statement of what you've seen so far through your career that everybody, you know, has this huge magical number? I mean, like the other day that I approached one of our competitors that he's probably doing, I want to say a million dollars in EBITDA at the most. And I'm like, hey, you know, um, have you, have you, have you, you know, will you consider selling? He's like, yeah. Uh, my number's thirty-five million, and I'm like, "How the hell did you get a thirty-five million valuation? You know, with less, you know, like with a million dollars in 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 EBITDA, right? So it's just how are you coming up with that number? Help me understand it. He could have come up with an actual number, and this is a guy right. running, you know, a a good decent size of of a company. So it's it's probably the lack of education, lack of really understanding the the sort of the valuation component. So. On, on a high level, what are the multiples in, in the passenger ground transportation side and in the trucking space? What can business owners and, and private operators expect when, from a valuation perspective? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll provide some some direction here. I, I think that what you said is, is probably true, and it's not specific to our space. It's just human nature. We always think these things. Um, I've, I've often said that, you know, I, I, our team goes to like 50 different industry trade events a given year. They're often some of the worst places for rumor mills around valuations and whatnot. You know, you know, Joe and Joe, you know, this guy said uh, he got this and he got that. Well, 
Sometimes that's a little bit um, fabricated. Sometimes that is just misunderstood or misinterpreted. But like, so I have to be very careful about, you know, what I can say here. But in general, I think I'm comfortable saying of the last 20 to 25 years that specifically in the bus space of doing deals, you know, most of the transactions are going to be somewhere between three and five times EBITDA. Most of them are. And so like, and so to be clear, like that would be for, let's just say it's, you know, an asset purchase and that includes assets free and clear. So what, what that would mean would that the seller would be responsible for paying off the debt as part of that valuation. And so what I think is one of the most helpful lessons that any business owner can can do to try to learn about like what's my business worth is, is to, to do the actual financial modeling or have someone do it for them. Because what ends up happening, like almost never is a buyer like stroking a check and saying, this is what I'm going to pay you. They're going to leverage their um, debt instruments, other people's money and to go get this done. Well, that, well there's going to be committees and boards and, and, and folks that have to sign off and, and they have to be satisfied. So they're going to have to have debt covenants and all these things. And so they're having to make a decision off of that. And so when they look, when we're able to show our clients like, well, here's why this buyer's tapped out is because they have to satisfy a certain amount, a limit, you know, a certain amount, a minimum amount of cash flow after debt service once they pay off the, all the debt from the transaction. And, and then they also have to satisfy an actual return on equity. And that, that in some cases, depending on who it's for, if it's private equity, let's, let's call it maybe 20 to 30%. So, so Spencer, um, can, can you please elaborate a little bit on the return on equity? And, and actually, if we, if we could go back a little bit uh, for the example that you mentioned of the three to five multiple for all the listeners. So if you have a million dollars in EBITDA, if you have a five, uh, five X multiple, you got to get five million. But, but from there, you need to subtract the, cost, the, the debt that the business has. Is that correct, Spencer? Yeah. I mean, I think that, that's, that's typically what happens. Um, you know, now there's obviously there's other ways where deals get done specifically with strategic buyers because you know what they might do is they might cherry pick the the pieces of equipment that they want exclude what they don't want and then they might you know apply like well hey what what do I think the goodwill of the revenue stream is they might do a percent of the revenue as part of that for the client list and so there's there's a lot of ways to 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 look at it but you talk about Asset heavy business, asset heavy business, and looking at it as a going concern. If you're buying all the assets and you're relying on the EBITDA, which is just you know that's just an instrument to demonstrate what kind of debt it can service, then yeah, there's some major built-in limitations, and you're not even considering in the ongoing capex that would have to go on top of that as well. So I, I think that that's why a lot of deals when they get done on the charter bus side specifically, because I don't even know six, seven hundred thousand dollars today to to buy a, a you know a bus, a, yep, uh, motor coach. a high end. So yeah, the math just doesn't work. It only produces two or three hundred thousand dollars, maybe three fifty max. It's like the math doesn't work. Like <laughs> so, like like there's some some built in limitations in terms of the way that lenders can look about how they're going to lend money on that. Now the workaround is where. You see a lot of folks, they'll, like I said, they'll, they'll do kind of a a la carte type transaction, very strategic, where they're just choosing the, you know, the, we're going to get all that revenue. We know that some of our existing fleet can, can become more efficient. So right. we're going to address some of that revenue on our underutilized equipment. Yep. 
And that's how we're going to justify the deal. That's also how they'll justify paying a premium on the goodwill portion uh, like of, of the revenue. And so I think that's where buyers and sellers have the meetings of the mind to say, let's figure out a way to combine our operations in such a way that we're getting those synergies that we need to help cost justify a deal that is better than what the business can command just by its standalone performance. Does that make sense? Yes, it totally that makes sense. I just want to make sure that for all the listeners that I get this, this many, many ways to skin this cat, but from yeah. what I've learned in the past is my hallucination was, well, I'm just going to get my EBITDA multiplied times five and boom. So I had this number in my head that wasn't as realistic as I thought it was when I really got a valuation and said, no, you have your actual valuation. You have the, your, your, let's say your five multiple, but then from there, you also need to subtract your debt. And when I look at that number, I wasn't as happy. And that's, that's why I'm still operating the business. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think in general, that's, you know, probably eight out of 10 times, that's that's how it's going to play out. And that's how it should play out. I think, um, you know, and so for, for, so for those that, you know, have high, you know, high value fleet, high debt, you know, the balance sheets are up, you know, upside down. Going back to your previous questions about when the right time is, is like, well, you want to make sure that your balance sheet is in such a way that if you get the right offer that you can actually net out what, you know, the right amount because you could have the best offer possible but if you just turned over your fleet and you're kind of upside down right now it's not going to make sense to exit at that right at that particular time you yeah. need to go yeah can you can you elaborate a little bit on the upside down on your fleet what do you mean by that meaning you need to reinvest in all your fleet again in order to produce the current EBITDA or well, it just depends. I mean, some people when they're, you know, when they're turning over their fleet, it's 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 in, you know, spread out cycles and other people they have a disproportionate amount where they're just bringing on all new equipment. And when that happens, puts a huge amount of new debt on the balance sheet even as they're trading in new vehicles against that to bring that debt down. So what we're saying is you know, if we're going off a multiple between three to five and, and then to get to the net proceeds, we have to pay off whatever the debt is on the equipment. Like, you know, unless you're raising the prices to to go with the newer equipment, then effectively you just added more debt, but your performance isn't in any better. Yeah. So, so, so what you've effectively done, they're like, well, am I getting credit for all that new equipment? Well, no, because the proof's in the pudding. It's in the earnings that 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 that, that equipment actually produces. Totally. So, so I, I think that, you know, I'm, I hope this is not discouraging. I think it, my intent is for this to be more empowering just in terms of like understanding how this works. And so in doing that, I think that you'll, there, you know, some people might manage their balance sheets a little bit differently based on, you know, I've had folks that they'll say, hey, I'm going to exit right now. But if I don't, you know, I'll probably be another four years because I'm going to invest in all new equipment. I'm going to make sure we get a good portion of that paid down before I exit because it'll be a better net outcome for me. So that's just how some people think about it. Correct. And and going back to the original question, when is a, a good time? And that's why you, you got to start having conversations with folks like yourself that could actually create that clarity, right? I mean, clarity, clarity is power and especially in the M&A space, it could be very powerful, right? Well, there's some other things too in terms of the timing that you might come like a huge big deal. Like maybe you, you know, maybe you had an accident or something like that, and you're expecting a 
you know, 50 to 80% premium increase. Well, that's game over. You know, like you, like those types of things dramatically affect like how you should think about exiting, getting a partner, merging with somebody else, just because unless you change the, the map, that, that, that's not going to work. Totally, totally. What about in the uh, uh, trucking and logistics space? Is the multiples very similar or they're a little bit much higher? They're going to be pretty similar on the asset because we're dealing with all the same constraints, primarily CapEx. You constantly have, I mean, the, you know, running those things five or 600,000 miles and they're going to turn over those tractors. The trailers maybe get five to 10 years um, usable life, some longer. Um, and so there's going to be some, some built-in constraints around those valuation ranges. But when you get to the asset life, when you're talking about brokerage and 3PL, it's just different. I mean, because yeah. you can scale those business without any additional capital investment or very limited capital investment. You can go four, five, six X. And so that's why when you see these headlines of these major kind of asset light deals or freight tech or whatever, like there's, it's just different. Like they're, they're, they're appealing to a very different investor that they're looking at the growth trajectory and what it costs to go deliver that. It's not even the same game as your Correct. traditional Correct. asset heavy carrier. And that's why the valuation ranges are effectively double for that totally. side or, or more. And that is very well said, Spencer. And, and which brings me to, to the next question too, is based on your experience, you have private equity um, entering into the space or they, they've been sort of penetrating into the space. How do they value a deal, especially for companies that are in the north of 20 million when they know that it's a capital in, intense business um, and where the, where the free cash flow is so constrained by capex, right? So, like, how do they they underwrite these deals so that way it makes sense for them from a from a, from an ROI perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, we're dealing with private equity group right now, and that's I mean, and they don't they don't use EBITDA. I mean, they'll they'll use free cash flow, which is EBITDA less, you know, whatever that portion of capex is for that period. So, like. So that so that's how they'll 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 look at that and apply multiple ties to, to that free cash flow number. Sorry, they will apply multiples to the free cash flow number. Correct, correct. And and, and listen, it's all semantics. Just yep. however you, I mean, you're gonna have to get to the meeting of the minds between buyer and seller. It's not like so it doesn't really matter. It's just like that's how they look at it. I think the major takeaway is for for folks in this, and it's um. In our annual annual report that we just did, the last three years, the whole world's turned upside down three different times. I mean, it's dramatic performance difference in 20 to 21 to 22. But really what was um, not surprising for us, but maybe for other folks, was that the same people were still doing most of the transacting. And so like what happens is like there's a very specific type of pri private equity group that wants to be in this space. And the average private equity wants no they don't want anything to do with this. It's just like that their their DNA is not for capital intensive deals. But for the people that are in this space, they're phenomenal. I mean, they're aggressive. They do they do awesome stuff. It's just a smaller pool of buyers. So back to the timing, if you're getting engaged with someone who does deals in the space, you have to take it with a certain amount of respect because they're just they're not like a typical investor. Private equity that understands this space, that has existing platforms in this space. Um you know they're a very viable person to be to be trying to do a deal with. Very well said. Very well said, Spencer. And last, uh, sort of the uh, sort of the like, few last questions is: 
uh, Spencer, for folks that are running twenty uh, million dollar companies and above, what can they do to sort of optimize their their business valuation? So, for example, we recently hire a COO. We're potentially going to be hiring a CEO. Um, if does that bring value to to a business, and or if it's not those components or elements, what do you what would you suggest to obviously optimize that even up? besides increasing profits. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I think all that sounds good, but if it's not backed by real data, you know, data and performance, then, you know, I, I think the number one thing is you're going to, to get top investment, you're going to have a very strong cor- like correlation of, in terms of your EBITDA to sales ratio. What we're looking for is efficiency. Like, compared to your, your peers, what are you producing in EBITDA on the same revenue stream that the next guy is. So like if you like that's how like that's like the carrot to get the investor interested in what you're doing. And so what you described is kind of like, well, how are we doing? Right? And so like it, so I think at that point what we're really understanding is, okay, that's that's the the appeal of the investment. The next thing is how do we de-risk the investment for the buyer? And that's where you start talking about reducing dependence on the owner giving real authority to your to your executive leadership team to actually design and execute strategy so that a private equity group or somebody else that's coming in is like wow this this is a well-oiled machine like we don't have to do anything we'll provide a couple of tweaks here and there but like relatively low transition risk based on how little dependence there is on ownership and how proven the performance track record is you know daniel i always say the last thing is from a financial standpoint I think one of the one of the things that people forget about the most is how accurate is your budgeting, you know, your budgeting versus your actual. When there's extremely tight uh, connection between those two things over multiple periods, you have to think about like what does that what does that do? Well, it, it says that what we say we're going to do, we actually do. So they're they're, they're partly making evaluation on what you did for the last 12 to 24 months, but they're also set, like looking at your projections. And if they said that, and if you're demonstrating that we hit within 5% of all those projections, then like, okay, he's going to hit 23 and 24 as well, based on that track record. So you've effectively, you know, materially de-risked the way that people perceive, you know, the overall risk of the transaction. So I think those things are just tr- tremendously helpful. That is a massive nugget there for all the listeners. Uh, based on my experience, uh, Spencer, uh, about four months ago, we were looking to acquire a $20 million company, and it was January, and they didn't have supposedly a budget for 2023. I'm like, how is that possible? You're a $20 million company, and you don't have a budget, not even for the prior year, neither. You know, that just tells me kind of like a lot that you just alluded. I mean, how can I know? I'm always, um, that one of my mentors says, uh, people, you need people in your life to tell you that your mouth stinks because you cannot do it on, you know, by your own, right? <laughs> so I'm like, let me, let me know, let me see with, with your financial statements if your mouth stinks, right? And then not spend time and, and energy and, and money on a deal that is not going to go anywhere. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that, Daniel. That's, that's pretty good. That, that, that's a nugget for me. I'm going to use later on down the road. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Spencer. So, um, to conclude the the episode of Spencer, obviously this podcast is the future of transportation, whether it's in the trucking or passenger side. Where do you see sort of this industry is going? You know, with sort of um, autonomous vehicles penetrated into 
into the industry. We have electrical vehicles into the space. Uh, where do you see this this industries in the next 10, 20 years, if you had to guess? Well, I think even in the short term, I think you're going to see this marriage between this artificial intelligence and the human element and finding the right mixture of both. Uh, there's so many things that AI can be doing on the passenger transportation in terms of dispatching, reservation, um, designing in terms of networks. There's so many things that, that AI will do and is doing better than the human mind can do at this point. But I think on the relationship side, I think you're going to see just, just really rethinking the workforce in terms of who are the people that we have to have in our organization from a growth standpoint. You're going to need that human element, that relationship person to complement all the things that AI is going to take away from the humans as, as part of you know delivering an elite service. So I, I think that in the short and, and, and midterm, I, I think there's tremendous upside and things to be excited about by finding that right pocket because it's not one or the other. It's going to be a marriage of both. And as far as um, the longer term end of that runway on the 10 years is, yeah, yeah. I, I think that it, when you start replacing the driver problems and you open up all of that capacity to get more innovative about how to combat the future, I think that's super exciting. So I see it as all very positive about these this technology that's coming our way. And I think it's going to open up a lot of opportunities to, uh, to reinvent the future for sure. That's very well said. And... Last two questions is, what is your best, the uh, the book that you normally recommend and what is the the advice, what is the best advice you have ever gotten? You know, I've gotten a lot of advice, that, that's for sure. <laughs> um, no, I, well, one I would say is, and, I, and I, I've probably given out over 250 copies of this, it's called Every Family's Business. It's what my dad and I walked through uh, over a five-year period where we had scheduled um, scripted communication for us to have authentic conversations about what we wanted from the business and what we didn't want from the business. And so, uh, to me, uh, you can, you can tag that with, with this episode if you want, but, um, uh, everybody's, every, everybody's business, every family's, uh, business by Tom Deans. Like I said, I've, I've, I've recommended that to tons of families. I think that's just a great way to get on the same page and, you know, hey, you go, I mean, people will go a decade without having a real sincere conversation about what they really want from the business. And this kind of puts that to an end. And so we've used it. I've recommended it. Blessed our family 100%. Totally. Um, and then let's go back to the best advice. Anything that comes to mind from your dad, especially you learned so much from him? Yeah. I mean, my dad, um, I think with my dad, you know, what, what has, what I've learned from him is that, um, in, in my world, in M&A, there's a tendency to, to talk a certain way, to do certain things. But honestly, like I think where he, what has allowed him to be so effective for a long, long time is just to keep it as simple as possible. And, not, and, and to me, like that's hard. It's very hard to speak very clearly and very straightforward about a particular issue. But I think that what I've learned from him and, and still am learning is that to the degree that you can keep your communication as simple, direct, and clear as possible, um, specifically in the context of M&A. I mean, that's the secret sauce right there because making the, the complex very, very simple, is it's an art form. And so I think that I'm still pursuing it, Daniel, for sure. But I think <laughs> that uh, he's modeled that out in a very powerful way. And I'm going to continue to try to work towards that. 
Totally, totally. So again, Spencer, thank you very much for taking the time for this episode. For all the listeners, uh, whether you're in the private sector, public sector, looking to sell your, your tracking and logistics company or passenger transportation services, how can they how can they get on this journey working with, with the Tenney Group? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would do is just go to our website, thetenneygroup.com. Um, go get inspired by some of those stories from our past clients that have gone through the process of selling their business, but more specifically, what they're doing now, which is an exciting new chapter of life. So that's what I would encourage uh, folks to do. Start there, read our, listen to our podcast in the hot seat um, with the Tenney Group. And then uh, when you're ready, reach out to us. We'll start the conversation and, and tell you the truth nothing else. And uh, I think that's a good place to start. Perfect. Thank you very much again, Spencer. With the Tenant Group, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. You have a great day. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the future of ground transportation. We appreciate you coming along for the ride. If you found value in this episode and want to hear more, please make sure to subscribe to the show.